Well, good morning and welcome to Christ Community Church. My name is Tim. Um, I'm one of the pastors here. It's good to see you here on this Memorial Weekend. And the passage that we're in this morning will be continuing um, in our study in the book of Hebrews. The passage this morning is, is interesting because it's about blood. And blood is loud. A blood speaks in a way that words never could. As a father, and especially as a father of two, year, two kids who are two years old or under right now, my entire life soundtrack is of children screaming at me. And that screaming doesn't faze me anymore. In fact, we were out recently at a restaurant, and my wife was telling me to, to, tell my, or to calm our son down who was screaming, and I didn't even know he was screaming because I'm just used to that. I just block it out. So screaming's normal, but blood... If either one of my boys came and they were bleeding, I would freak, because blood is loud. Kids, you know this, right? If you're out playing outside and you start bleeding and your mom or dad sees it, they stop everything. You have to stop what you're doing, stop playing your game. They get their Band-Aids and their gauze. They think they're doctors or whatever they're doing, and they have to stop the bleeding before you can keep playing, because blood is is loud. Now, I'll never remember the, the look on my mom's face when she saw my face and my neck covered in blood, which of course requires an explanation. And when I was a kid, we, we didn't have iPhones or iPads, and we barely had video games, and so we had to make up our own games. And of course, any game, the only way it's fun is if there's a chance of someone getting very seriously injured. And so the game my sister and I would play from time to time is I would get into our top bunk, and we had this like giant ball, and she would throw it up to me, and I would catch it. I know it sounds like so much fun, but to a four-year-old, this was awesome. So we would do this, and the challenge of the game was how far away from the bunk could she throw it, and I still reach out and catch it. Yeah, you realize this was my sister's plan to kill me at this point. (laughs) And so she'd throw it a little further, I'd reach a little farther, she'd throw it a little further, I'd reach a little farther more, and every time I'd catch it, and I, I remember at one point catching it, and, and realizing that, that my feet were over my head. And I hit the ground face first from my top bunk. I was knocked out, and my sister ran for her own room for cover. Left me there bleeding. I don't know how long I was out. I came to, I, I walked into the bathroom, and my face, I'd never seen that much blood in my life. I still have never seen that much blood on myself in, that, in my life. Face and my neck were just covered in blood. So I did what any four-year-old would do. I cried out for my mom. The problem was, my mom was on the phone, and as a four-year-old, anytime my mom was on the phone, I talked to her and annoyed her. And so, when I began crying out for help to my mom, she thought this was just another instance of me trying to annoy her. So I cry out, and my mom responded the way I know I would respond now, and most of you would respond, as I'm crying for help, my mom yells back upstairs at me, be quiet, I'm on the phone. So what do I do now, right? So I just went downstairs, walked into the kitchen. My mom had her face, her back turned to me, and I just stood there for a couple seconds. She turned around, and the look on her face, I will never forget, and she hung up the phone immediately, and we went to the hospital. The blood is loud. It it communicates an urgency that, that words can't. It's louder than any word that we could speak. And so this morning, our passage is about a blood that speaks, and it's loud, and it communicates something that we need to hear, but what it says will surprise you. 
And so this morning's passage, Hebrews 12, verses 18 through 29, and it's about a blood that speaks, and it's about what it says, what it means, and what we or what you must do about it. it sounds like a good sermon outline, doesn't it? What it means, or what it says, what it means, and what you must do about it. So first, what it says. Well, before we get into the passage, if you've done what I've done, and, and Anytime I've I've read through the Old Testament or read parts of the Old Testament, God just at times freaks me out. And and especially this is a common theme. Anytime that, or just about anytime, someone comes into the presence of God, they're terrified, full of fear. They run away. They flee. They can't stand to be in the presence of God. This always confuses me. Why, Why is it like that? And if I had to pick one story to illustrate what I mean, there's this moment in the Old Testament in a book called Exodus where this, this guy named Moses, he takes this nation called Israel, he gathers them all at this mountain to meet with God. And the mountain is just freaky. So on the mountain is, is smoke. The ground is shaking. There's, there's deafening thunder and blinding lightning. Imagine being there. So Moses gathers all of these people at this mountain, and God begins to speak from the mountain. And the first thing he says is, don't step foot on this mountain, as if anyone wanted to. And God continues to speak, and it's so intense, it's so frightening. The people actually say to Moses, shut God up. We cannot take this. You go and talk to him, because we can't stand this. Take him away. We can't be in the presence of God. It's a terrifying, frightening image. And that's where our our passage actually begins today, is by recounting this story of Exodus chapter 20, Exodus 19 and 20. And it recounts this mountain and this experience that these people had on this mountain. See Hebrews 12, verses 18 to 21. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest in the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. That's where our passage starts this morning. And did you hear the words that described their encounter? Fire, darkness, Gloom, a storm, begging for God to stop talking, begging for silence. Which raises the question, why? Why are so many people's encounters with God like that in the Bible? Why? My fear is many of us would initially dismiss that question as irrelevant to us, right? Because we, we all think we're decent people, right? We live up to our own standards. We're all right. If we ever came into the presence of God, it would go okay with us. And yet, I would argue, none of us live up to our own standards. And for example, if if I had to say, what's the one rule to live by? My guess is most of us in this room would say something like, do unto others as they would do to you. Or do unto others as you would have them do to you. Right? The golden rule. But do any of us live up to that? I don't. There has not been an entire day in my life where I have been as patient with other people as I expect them to be patient to me. Right, some of us, we can't even be patient with drivers who cut us off. Or I haven't spent a day giving everyone who I'm, I'm talking to the, the same benefit of the doubt in what they say that I expect them to give to me. 
or that I've never spent an entire day listening to someone else the way I want them to listen to me when it's, it's my turn to talk. That if I really pressed in to do I love others the way that I want them to love me, my guess is I would not stand that test and neither would you. And, and the problem for us then is when we come into the presence of God, we, we encounter someone who is so selfless, so loving, so giving, who does love others the way he would want others to love him, that it threatens us. And we see we don't live up to our own standards. And not just that we don't live up to our own standards, our standards are actually far too low. That some of us may say, oh yeah, I love others the way I want to be loved. But my guess is if we really pressed in, your standard for what loving your neighbor is is probably far lower than what it would be if you were standing in the presence of, of God. And so to come into the presence of God is a frightful experience. And it was frightful for Moses, for Isaiah a prophet, for Elijah a prophet. And if it was, if it was frightening for them, what makes me, what makes you think you would be any better? So that is where this passage starts. To come into the presence of God is not something to do lightly. And so it raises the question, well, how in the world could we ever meet with a God like this? A God who says, don't even step foot on the mountain. A God who we can't bear to hear speak. And the answer comes in the next few verses, in verses 22 through 24. Because the whole point of this passage is, is that through Christ... We as Christians have a fundamentally different experience of God. And there's a reason. So here now, verses 22 through 24. But you, Christians, those who believe in Christ, you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. And to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. I like that mountain. I want that one, right? I don't want the first mountain. I don't want gloom and fire and tempest and, and, and una- being unable to stand in the presence of God. I kind of like feasting, joy, being called a firstborn, being made perfect. I like the second mountain. And and the author wants us to see the contrast between the two. That the first mountain, that one, is is filled with dread, and the other, joy. The first mountain is gloom and tempest and and darkness. And I love this phrase, although it's funny to me, because none of us talk like this, but I love this phrase, we have come to innumerable angels in festal gatherings. What in the world does that mean? Because none of us talk like that. And my guess is, as you've explained to other people what you're doing this weekend for Memorial Weekend, none of you have said, well, I'm, I'm gathering with innumerable people in festal gathering. <laughs> right? No one talks like that, so what in the world does this mean? Well, I love, I love what it means, because this word, festal gathering, is not some lame party. It is a celebration. In fact, the word originally was used for the Olympic Games in those days and the wild parties that would go on during those games. It's celebration, it's feasting, it's joy. Hey, kids, think of the best birthday party you've ever been to and multiply at times a million. That's what we're getting at here. This is not just a mountain of God permitting us to be there. It's a mountain of joy and partying and gladness. Not a mountain of gloom, a mountain of gladness. And we need to hear that, that that's what through Christ we are invited to. But that's not the only 
only contrast between the mountains that, that the, the author has. The second is that one mountain we cannot touch, and the other is, is our home. Now think about that. The first mountain, God says, if even an animal touches this mountain, it will die. And on this mountain, it, it says that we come and we are the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled, which means our names are written in heaven and to God. That we all come to this mountain, not simply as Christians, just as God permits us, as all right, come on, but as, as firstborn sons or daughters with all the inheritance rights. That's a major theme in, in, in the Bible, that as, as, as believers, we don't just come as, as children of God, we come as firstborn, with everything that is His is ours. And so that is the difference between these two mountains, but I know what you're all what we're all thinking, right? What changed? Why do we as Christians get to enter the second mountain and not, not the first? What changed? The answer is verse 24. To this blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What in the world does that mean? And how is that helpful? Well, the only way to know that is to know the story of Abel. And Abel was a guy in the, the Old Testament, at the very beginning of, of the book of the Bible, in Genesis. And Abel had a brother named Cain. And Cain was intensely jealous of his brother Abel. And it was, it was so bad that God himself actually went to Cain, like any of us as parents would go do. If there was major rivalry, major bickering going on, major jealousy between our siblings, we would sit them down and say, you can't between our kids, you would say, we would say, you can't do that. You have, to, you have to cut it out. So God steps into Cain. He says, Cain, your jealousy is going to kill you. If you don't kill your jealousy, it's going to kill you. And Cain goes. He, he doesn't kill his jealousy. Instead, he kills his brother Abel. And to make matters worse, God pursues Cain again and asks Cain, Cain, where, where's Abel? And Cain's response doesn't just show indifference to his brother. It shows indifference to God because he says, essentially, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Implying that, that God, you should take care of him. He's your business, not mine. And God's response in that moment to, to Cain was, Cain, I know where Abel is because his blood is crying out from the ground to me. It's crying out for your judgment. It's crying out for your condemnation. It's telling me what you've done and who you are. It's crying out for you to die the same death he did. And so the question is, okay, well, why does the author point us back to that blood of Abel that cried out for justice for him? Why does he bring it up here for us? And the answer is that, that earlier in Hebrews, there is one of the most, should be encouraging, but I think most shocking verses in the Bible, which is that Jesus says he is not ashamed to be our brother. That in Christ, we are not just followers of Jesus, we are in some real way his brothers and sisters. And yet, if there's also another message of the book of the Bible or the book of Hebrews, it is, it is that the way that I have lived my life has led to the death of my brother Jesus. Because I didn't kill the jealousy in my own heart. The pride, the self-centeredness, the fact that I don't live up to my own standards, the fact that I don't really love my neighbor as myself. 
Because I've lived my life the way that I have, my brother Jesus died. And his blood should cry out from the ground for my judgment, for my, my, my condemnation, for my death. But it doesn't. Because the author says the blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And that the blood that should cry out for my judgment cries my salvation. The blood that should cry for my death gives me life. The blood that should announce my death, that should announce my end, gives me a new beginning. And that's why when we come into the presence of God as Christians, we don't come to a mountain of dread and a mountain of fear and a mountain of darkness. We come to a mountain of feasting and of joy in the presence of God as his sons and his daughters, all because the blood of Jesus speaks a better word and it is loud. And if it says anything to us this morning, his blood, it says, come. What worse can you do then lead to the death of Jesus. You can't do anything worse than that. And if you did that, and it's the worst thing you could do, and God's invitation is still to come, that's what the blood speaks, and it speaks louder than any word of condemnation, any word of judgment, any word of fear or failure over your life. That's what the blood of, of Jesus says this morning. So what does it mean? Well, the author takes us next to where this really begins to have application or importance to us in verses 25 and, and 27, or 25 through 27. Here's what he says. This is confusing stuff, so listen in, and then we'll, we'll unpack it. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven? At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. And this phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. What does this mean? What's he saying? Well, there's one clear-cut command that we need to hear that, that needs to be front and center. And that is he begins, after he says, this blood speaks a better word over you, he says to us, don't refuse that, that word. Don't refuse him who is speaking to you, who's speaking a word of grace over your life, who's speaking a word of, of love, who's giving you, you vindication instead of condemnation. Don't refuse that voice. Which to me raises the question, why would anyone refuse God's grace? Why would anyone refuse God saying, come? Come to the mountain. And the author answers that question in a very strange way. He goes to an obscure book in the Old Testament called Haggai. And I promise you there is a book in the Bible called Haggai. I did not just make that up. There is a book called Haggai. The author goes there. It's a small prophetic book. And he takes us to Haggai for, for a couple reasons. The first being that Haggai talked about that first mountain where God, God spoke and all of the earth shook. And everyone was terrified. And what Haggai said is, is, okay, that happened, but God is going to speak again. And the next time he speaks, it's not just the earth that's going to shake. The heavens are going to shake. Everything is going to shake. And everything that is shakable, that will not last, that is not of God, will be gone. At the sound of his voice, everything terrible, that rebels against God, that brings us pain, it will all be gone because it's all shakable. But that doesn't answer the question. 
right? Why would any of us refuse that voice, refuse this grace? And the question answers itself, doesn't it? How could any of us refuse that voice? Why would any of us refuse the blood of Jesus which says, come? It doesn't just say come, but it speaks in a way that will one day shake everything terrible out of this earth. And imagine raising your voice and cancer's gone. Imagine just just uttering a, a syllable and every hospital closes. Imagine that. Why would we refuse that voice? And the reality is this, this is, is here because it's meant to be both an encouragement and a challenge. It's meant to encourage those of us whose faith are in Christ to remind us that we don't, we don't live a life that will end with sadness or, or death, but it ends with the voice of God speaking over our lives, speaking a better word, inviting us to come when he should say go, and not just inviting us to come, but taking off everything sad, everything broken, everything that causes pain or tears in this life, he will take away, because it's all shakable, and it cannot stand at the sound of his voice. This is meant to be an encouragement to those of us who are Christians to come and to worship him who says come, but it's also a challenge. How could any of us refuse this voice? A voice inviting us to feast and to joy and to gladness. It's a challenge to those of us who might opt to refuse what he's saying. And so this morning, if if you're not a Christian, let me just say first, this is we're really glad that that you're here. And and second, Christians don't always come off this way, but but there are all kinds of reasons not to believe. And I I've heard many of them, and I'm sure there are there are more. But this passage is a challenge to you. It's asking you a question. It's pressing in. It's saying, how can you refuse this voice of grace? Because this ultimately, this passage, this obscure passage from Haggai, highlights the one reason why I will believe in the midst of all kinds of reasons not to believe. And I know there's a day coming when when all of my bitterness and brokenness will be healed, when all my tears will be washed away, when everything that has brought me pain in this life will be gone. But without that voice of grace, if you're not in Christ, the last word spoken over you will be sadness and death. That's what this passage is saying. If you refuse the voice of grace, there's only one voice left speaking, and that's the voice of death, which God is saying is shakable and will be done away with. And so while this world may be full of sadness and death, we all know that should not be the last word. We all sense that. That's why funerals are as hard today as they will be a thousand years from now. And even though we keep dying, we keep sensing we should not keep dying. And that's what Haggai says, is that one day the voice of grace will be raised and it will either be the greatest encouragement and joy of my life, Or if I refuse that voice, the last word I will hear will be sadness and death. So what the blood says is come. What it means is is an encouragement or a challenge to us. Alas, what what must we do about it? And the short answer is, is worship. And I know worship is a churchy word, right? None of us probably know what it means. We just 
just sounds like a good word to say in church, so worship. Um, but what does it mean? And the author gives us two good definitions in verses 28 and 29. When he gets done saying, this blood is speaking a better word over you, remember that the last word this blood will speak over you is one of, of, of welcome to the mountain. But here's what it means for you now today. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. At worship, if it's anything, in this passage especially, it's, it's two things. It's gratitude and it's awe. It's gratitude and it's awe. That, that first, worship is, is gratitude. And the reason is... <clears throat> is because the, the kingdom God offers us is one that, that cannot be shaken. That's the point. It's don't just be thankful because God's awesome and he permits you. And all, be, be thankful because what he offers you can't be taken from you. It's unshakable. It will withstand his voice. And so our worship, our prayers, as we read scripture, as we go about this life together, every moment that we spend in our life, we should be thanking God for whatever he brings our way, for whatever he puts in front of us. I don't know if you're like me, most of my, or, or so often, most of my praying, most of my singing is revolved around me and what I need and what I'm thinking and what I'm feeling. And what the author says here is you need to take a step back and be reminded of what God has done for you, reminded of the blood speaking over you, and live a life of gratitude, of thankfulness. For our God has done far more than you and I could ever spend time thanking him for, and that should be a prominent part of our worship. But second, and where I want to spend more time, is that worship is awe. That when you pray, when you sing, when you worship, you are in the presence, as the, the author says, of a God who is a consuming fire. The one thing I don't want us to walk away from this morning is to think, oh, that first mountain was terrible, and the Old Testament's bad, and I'm glad we don't have that. That's, that would totally miss the point of this passage. The point is, that is what God is like. And but by the blood of Jesus, that would be our experience of God. He is a consuming fire. He is a holy God who demands us to come before him in righteousness. And so for us to come into his presence, to sing and to pray to him, we are coming into the presence of a consuming fire. And that's one reason why there will be times in worship when, when I will lift my hands. And I know that weirds some people out. And frankly, it used to weird me out. Because as an introvert, I only show my emotion about as often as the Olympics come around. About every four years, I might shed a tear. I just am not, a, I'm not an emotional feeling guy. I'm just not. But I will lift my hands in worship. Because words will never express enough my position before God. And even though as a kid, I... I saw the people who did that in church, you know, moment music started, hands went up, started waving, it just weird, weirded me out. I'm the guy who weirds other people out now. Because the only way I can tell God, you are great and I am not, is at times to just lift my hands. To be reminded of the invitation that when he should say to me, go away, he says, come. And that a blood that should say to me, you're dead, gives me life. And words will never be enough to say to God, thank you and you are what I am not. 
But worship being all is not just, it's not just, okay, God, you're awesome, I'm terrible, don't kill me. It's not just that. Worship is all is also living and being in his presence and feeling his presence. The worship is standing in awe of his embrace of you. That all of us are looking for embrace and for affirmation in all kinds of places. Right? We seek it from how much money we make, from how far we get in our career, for how our kids turn out, for what our houses look like, for what we look like. We're looking for affirmation and embrace from all kinds of places. And yet the only place we need affirmation and embrace is from God. And that is the only, the only embrace that can get us through the hardest of our lives, the hardest of our days. And my wife and I, we have, we have two boys now, Isaiah and Micah. Um, but our first, our first baby ended in a, in a miscarriage. <clears throat> and that was a really hard moment in time for me. My wife both. It was just a hard season for us. And I remember there was one moment when I was, I was worshiping. And, and as I was, I was singing, God just became present to me in a way that, that he hadn't before. Because after our miscarriage, we got pregnant with Isaiah, our first, really soon. And so all through the first several weeks of that pregnancy, we were just filled with fear, wondering what would happen, just waiting for a bad doctor's appointment. So as I, I was singing this, this one moment, God just, just was present to me in a way he hadn't been for a long time. And, and he overwhelmed me, and he said to me, which isn't anything great, but he just said, Tim, it'll be okay. And those words just repeated over and over in, in my mind. And I know some of you are thinking, that's all he said. That's kind of a letdown, actually. We were, we were ready for something good, and you just, that wasn't very good. But that, that's the point, is God doesn't have to come with grand words, grand gestures. He just has to come. Him himself, his presence, is enough to embrace and affirm us in a way that every ridiculous, shakable thing we try to get affirmation and embrace from will never do. God's embrace is enough. And that's what worship is. It's standing in awe of him. That in worship we experience his embrace. We draw near to him. That his love of us gets personal. That I can scream and, and preach for an hour about how God's blood speaks, or Jesus' blood speaks a better word over us, but there's a way that God can make that real for you that I never will be able to do. There's a way that his spirit can enter into your heart and speak in a way that, that even on my best day with my best sermon, I could never even come close to touching. And that's one of the reasons why we gather together as a community is, is that we have faith that as we gather, God is present in a unique way and speaks to each of us in a unique way and that God will use even the words I'm saying now in ways I would never expect or never have planned for. And I trust God to do that because his embrace of us when we gather and we come and worship and not just as a corporate gathering, but when we pray in our car by ourselves, when we're at our workplace, wherever we are as we worship God, his embrace, when it gets personal, it's enough. It is enough. That's what we were made for. Which is why the author says, at the end of all time, we come to this mountain and there is the presence of God. And the important piece here is not, hey, someday in the distant future, thousands of years from now, when Jesus comes back, you get to experience God, you get to embrace God, you get to know him then. No, the point is, in verse 22, you have come to Mount Zion. You are here. 
You can have the embrace, the affirmation, the worship of God here and now. Yes, it will be more full on that day, but today, now, you have come to Mount Zion, to the second better mountain, where we don't come in fear and we don't come in dread, but we come because he's invited us. And someday, the, the small glimpses of God we get will be complete. The small embrace that we have, that we feel now of God, will be our entire existence. And I love the way C.S. Lewis puts this, in the weight of glory. To me, this is one of the best quotes, any Lewis quote I've, I've ever read. But he talks about this. The door on which we have been knocking all our lives will open at last. Then our lifelong nostalgia, our longing to be reunited with something in the universe from which we now feel cut off, to be on the inside of some door which we have always seen from the outside, is no mere neurotic fancy, but the truest index of our real situation. At present we are on the outside of the world, the wrong side of the door. But all the leaves of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor that it will not always be so. Someday, God willing, we shall get in. And God is willing because his blood speaks a better word over us. And one day we will get in. And the embrace of God will be complete and full. And his invitation to come, which we will taste this morning, will be our entire life. Everything who we are. And so there's only two ways to respond to that word. One is, is to refuse the voice of grace and to run away from his invitation, to run away from the blood that speaks a better word, to run away from the voice that will prevent the last word you ever hear to be sadness and death. That's one way. The other way to respond is to come and to worship. And that's what we're going to do now as a church. Let me pray. God, we are gathering to worship you because we, we want to taste Mount Zion, the second mountain. We want to know you more than we do. We want to love you more than we do. But God, we live in a world with many voices, and no doubt many of us even now have all sorts of reasons to believe you don't love us, you're not inviting, or this isn't for real. And God, I just know and I trust that your spirit can work in each of those hearts and speak what should and needs to be said. Because your blood is loud and it speaks a better word. And it is in that name of Jesus, whose blood that speaks on our behalf, that we speak and we pray. Amen.